Welcome to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I am Tammy Mack. A mass shooting is defined as any incident in which four or more people are shot, not including the shooter. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there were 692 mass shootings in 2021. That is an average of almost two per day. When these mass shootings happen, lawmakers often say it is a mental health issue. Is that BS or a solid line of defense? The business of being black today is should mass shooters be privy to the mental illness defense? Please welcome civil rights attorney Lee Merritt. Hi, Lee. Hey, how are you? Good. Racial justice and labor rights advocate Sherry Bell. Hi, Sherry. Hey, Tammy. Attorney Jaye Person Lynn is here. Hi, Jaye. Hey, Tammy. Great to be back. And criminal defense attorney John Henry Brown. Hi, John Henry. Yeah, hello, everybody. Happy to be here. Yes. The first question I like to start with is why? And since this is the business of being Black, I ask why should Black people care about the mental defense illness when it comes to mass shooters? And I'll kick this question off with you, Lee. Well, we should care because we know that our nation is in um, what most experts have called a mental health crisis, that we've seen a sharp decline in the state of, uh, of mental health in the United States. And a lot of that is untreated, a lot of that is undiagnosed. And if if the symptom, if mass shootings are one of the symptoms of this mental health deterioration, uh, we want to be aware of the, the threat that it, that it exposes us to and we wanna be able to re properly respond to it. Yes, Sherry. Why should black people care? Well, when you look at the shootings that occurred in Buffalo, New York, and Charleston, North Carolina, these shootings were premeditated, planned by lone white male shooters that were fueled by racism. They singled out these uh, senior citizens, uh, you know, and churchgoers solely based on their race. And racism is not a mental illness. So when you think about how it impacts us, that um, targeting is a continuum of the racialized terror that we faced in this country since its, since, since its um, inception, right? And we know that um, that type of narrative regarding um, mental illness as a defense fuels this Republican right-wing gun, uh, anti-gun control narrative, right? That guns don't kill people mentally ill people with guns kill people, right? And we know that that is not the large part of the problem. The problem is accessibility to military assault grade weapons, right? So um, sure, black people should care because many of these attacks, actually a large number of the motives in these attacks are unknown, but of the known motives, racism is one of the driving catalysts. And so for that reason, I cannot support mental health being a defense in these mass shootings. Racism is not a mental illness. That's a good one, but you might be giving uh, white supremacists a new idea uh, to include racism as a mental illness. Attorney Jaye, uh, why should black people care about mental illness as a defense for mass shooters? Uh, we should care about it for mass shooters because we care about it for other crimes. And if we restrict that mental health defense on this particular crime, mass shooting, it becomes a slippery slope. And now we restrict that defense for other types of crimes. 
So we often know people who go about their day-to-day lives, living law-abiding lives, but then they snap one day or they, we know them to have some mental health conditions and those mental health conditions lead to uh, a manic episode that leads to uh, otherwise criminal act. If we limit that ability to, to use a mental health defense on a mass shooting, um, and in this sense, it seems we're talking about more of the school shootings or the mass shootings uh, that are racially promoted, but if we limit it there, then we limit it in other places. And all the, the times that I've been able to use that defense to the benefit of my client where it was actually necessary for me to use that defense, I don't wanna be limited. So that's why I think we have to allow for that defense even for mass shooters. John Henry, why should black people care about mental illness as a defense in mass shootings? Well, I think um, uh, it's correct that, uh, I mean, I've done over 350 trials in my career. That's just trials. They can imagine how many other cases I've had. Uh, you know, and basically people uh, have mental illness uh, or they don't. Um, for instance, I think a lot of the, the school shooters, uh, most of them, if not all of them, have had some pre-existing mental illness issues. Um, that doesn't mean that's an excuse. Um, the mental, mental illness defenses are uh, not an excuse, they're an explanation. Um, I agree with what somebody said earlier, and I think you said, and that is that it irritates me beyond belief that um, certain political people and parties in this country uh, try to blame mental health um, and, and take the focus off the real problem, which is the proliferation of firearms. But I, I want to I stick to the question at hand. Why should Black people care about this? Well, I mean, in general, uh, I mean, I've uh, been involved in the civil rights movement since 1964. So, I mean, and the reality is, is that many, many victims in um, shooting cases in general, not even mass shootings, are people of color. Um, so um, I think, for instance, the Buffalo case, and my, my understanding of what happened in the Buffalo case is absolutely no basis for a mental illness defense because the motive was racist. Um, if, there, if the motive is ra racist, then mental health defense uh, is simply not available. Um, so, I, I mean, I think- That's interesting. That, so is that, is that, um, is that legal? Like, is that a legal thing in, in, when you say if the basis or if the motive is racist, you cannot use mental illness as a defense? Is that what you're suggesting? Yes. Um, first of all, mental illness defenses, as other lawyers here will tell you, are very difficult to succeed uh, in general. Um, but uh, the, the, the definition of... Uh, in order to use an insanity defense, it gets kind of complicated, but I'll put my professor's hat on for a minute. And that a person has to have a mental disease or defect. And as a result of that mental disease or defect, they don't know the difference between right, wrong, and some other nuances. Or Attorney Jaye, I, I see you shaking, nodding your head in, agree, in agreement here. So we have now learned that if the motive is racism, you cannot use mental illness as a defense. Uh, speak to what uh, John Henry is saying. 
Yes, well, to that point, um, and as uh, Ms. Bell stated, racism is not defined. There's a whole DSM four or five, and it's like the Bible for mental illnesses and mental health. And racism just is not in there. It's not uh, something that the scholars in that field have designated as a mental health issue. Although obviously, you know, I think you gotta be a little crazy to truly believe in racism, but there's the racism, then there's the racial hatred. And it seems like uh, the Buffalo shooting, the South Carolina shooting was more based on racial hatred. And if that's your, your purpose, then it's not someone that has this mental defect that can't tell right from wrong. It's just someone that's motivated by this hatred for this particular group. Uh, and as um, I wanna say council uh, stated, it is, it is not easy. You have to get a few, at least two different psychiatrists or psychologists to sign off on this person having this mental uh, health issue. And typically without prior mental health diagnosis, it's, it's very difficult to even use the mental health defense. And the other thing I point out, the mental health defense does not allow someone to go home. They then go into a locked mental facility, at least here in California, until they're deemed uh, no longer a harm to society. And that could be just as long as a, a prison sentence. The National Alliance on Mental Illness defines a mental illness as a condition that affects a person's thinking, feeling, behavior, or mood. One in five U.S. adults experience mental illness each year. Is there sometimes a rush to judgment to deem a mass shooter as deranged or mentally ill, Attorney Lee? I know I, as soon as a, a mass shooter goes out, uh, the media immediately uh, uh, gathers their all of their their language, and inevitably, mental illness comes up. I'd like to say, with the exception of black people, ah. Attorney Lee, Lee Merritt. I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, the, there is. You a think there's a rush to judgment when saying that a mass shooter has been mentally ill is mentally ill. When the mass shooter uh, fits a certain stereotype, typically a white male, a younger white male, we often hear that mental health was a, a possible explanation for uh, the use, uh, the resort, the resort to violence, or the, the you know psych a psychotic break that led to the mass shooting. Now we don't see that happen. We don't see that defense being successful in court very often, but certainly in the court of public opinion, uh, we see white male shooters tend to be tr treated by, by the media with a bit more kick gloves and uh, an ex a medical or mental explanation is often uh, offered for uh, the their terrible acts. But what's problematic, this is John Henry, what's problematic about all of these things is the mass shootings in and of themselves seem crazy. I mean, the first time you heard about uh, Buffalo or you heard, heard about Sandy Hook or anything, the first reaction one has probably not about Buffalo, but in other shootings, is that person has to be crazy. I mean, I represented a soldier in Afghanistan who went crazy and killed 16 people. Hold and that thought, hold that thought, attorney. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break and come right back. I want you to definitely talk about uh, that instance on the business of being black with Tammy Mack on Fox Soul. We'll be back. Welcome back to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I'm Tammy Mack. And the business of being black today is the mental illness defense when it comes to mass shooters. John Henry, you were talking to us about a case that you've dealt with. 
Well, yeah, I mean, the point I uh, was trying to make is that the facts of the matter uh, of mass shootings often scream, we all as citizens think, well, that person has to be crazy. Well, first of all, there's a difference between being mentally ill and using that defense legally and getting away with it, all right? But uh, yeah, I represented a soldier uh, in Afghanistan who went completely crazy one night and ended up killing 16 people. And there's no question that he was mentally ill. Um, and so- uh, When you say there's no question, what does that mean? That uh, the- Because by your, by your suggestion, uh, when we just, you know, regular average people see a mass shooting happen, we think inevitably that that person is crazy. So when you say he was obviously had gone crazy, what were the obvious signs? What does that mean? Well, I mean, it's a long, long story. Um, but in any event, I, I mean, he was given drugs and alcohol by the military. Um, he, and he had been on his fourth deployment. Uh, he had his best friend's leg blown off the day before. I had to put it in a plastic bag. I mean, he just went off the deep end. There's no question. Got it. Got it. So, I mean, but but I, I think there is a danger in classifying all mass shootings as someone who's mentally ill, because I just don't think that's true. What irritates me is what you said earlier, and that is the certain uh, members of the Republican Party mostly uh, just talk about mental illness. They just try to do anything to take the focus off the gun. Now, let's talk about guns as a tool, because a gun is in some ways a tool. If we had a tool that was manufactured in the United States of America and resulted in uh, 692 deaths, uh, not even in a year, if we had a tool that was manufactured, the government would take some action against that tool maker, right? But our government is afraid to take action against the tool maker when we're talking about guns. And so people in positions of power uh, try to take the focus off the firearm issue and put it on the mental health issue. Uh, and that really bothers me. And I think that should bother anybody. I don't care what your color is, basically. It's really of great concern. At Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, Dylan Roof murdered eight parishioners and the pastor in 2015. At this trial, he said, I felt like I had to do it and I still feel like I had to do it. He had previously given the reason that black people were raping our women and taking over our country. Does that sound like mental illness, hate or both, Sherry? Uh, I think it is mostly racial hatred. Um, you know, fueled by a lot of the narratives that we heard what our previous president and all those people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, these dangerous historical narratives about uh, demonizing uh, Black folks has uh, contributed not only to what caused the insurrection, but also to some of these shootings that we see. Um, you know, as we as I mentioned earlier, some of the motives are unknown. Like, who knows how many more shootings are racially motivated? I I know that uh, the one in uh, there was a shooting, uh, an act of terror, I should say, that occurred in El Paso, Texas, in Walmart, and um, largely Latino um, consumer base, and that person was uh, influenced by this whole replacement theory, fear of losing the power that you have at the hands of already oppressed and marginalized 
people. So for, uh, you know, th that is no different from lynchings, right? When people used to gather their families around and watch a black person get hung from a tree and whipped and put it on postcards. That's the same type of mentality that that was a large portion of our population to say that all those people were crazy is a bit a bit over the top. Yeah, I don't think I don't think they are. Um, I mean, there are some uh, mass shootings that clearly are uh, mental health uh, based, but not all of them by, by any means. Um, I, I think actually it's uh, an intelligence problem. It's an IQ problem more than a mental health problem. I, I mean, I'm sorry. I just think that people who are racist uh, have, are not very smart. Let's just put it that way. And so, uh, so that doesn't mean it's a mental health issue at all. It may be a, an educational issue, but it's not a uh, mental health issue. All right. Lawyers from each side will often bring experts in the same field to court from their case. Uh, these experts may assert uh, uh, opposite opinions about the same person. There could be a psychiatrist on each side of the case, one who uh, says a defendant is mentally ill, while the other uh, says the defendant does not have a mental illness at all. So how do we know which expert is correct and which is making assumptions or how do who do we believe or is that up to the jury? Is that up to the judge uh, when handling these mental ill cases, uh, uh, Attorney Jaye? Uh, yes, it's it's up to the finder of fact, which is sometimes the judge, sometimes the jury. Um, but that's where the, the lawyers arguments, that's where the lawyers come in. You have two people with uh, equitable um criteria, equitable education, equitable experience, saying two different things, then it really comes down to who argues it in a way that the jury understands the best or the judge understands the best. So that's where the lawyers come back in. Um, but it's really difficult to say who's right or who's wrong in something like mental health. If it was a broken arm, we could do an x-ray and we could see the broken arm. You can't x-ray someone's brain and see the mental illness in most instances that would lead to, uh, when it's actually a mental illness that leads to a mass shooting, there's no x-ray or MRI that you could do to prove that this person has this issue. And so it really just comes down to how the lawyers relay the information from the expert witnesses to the jury or the judge and what they believe. I think it's a good time to point out it's a really good time to point out there's a big difference between a diagnostically mental illness and legal, uh, the defense of mentally ill. A person could be completely psychotic and not fit the criteria for the defense uh, of insanity. Uh, so that there's very little correlation between the clinical diagnosis of insanity and the legal criteria. That is very interesting. Attorney Merritt? When getting into the battle of experts, I think one case stands out in mind. I don't have the exact case uh, call number, uh, but it was involving the murder of a, a prominent gay politician um, uh, or LGBTQAI plus okay. uh, politician. In San Francisco, yeah, Harvey Milk Mudd. Harvey. Uh, Harvey Mudd. Yeah, but who, who went by Milk Harvey. Um, and, right. and in that case, the defense uh, for his assassin, his, his uh, who was accused in that case, argued that because his, his assassin stayed up eating Twinkies all night, uh, that he, he couldn't uh, form the mens rea, the mental capacity uh, to be guilty of the crime of murder. And they brought experts forward to testify to that. 
And it, it, it real, that case really drove how in the legal field, we began to qualify experts because I believe in that case, initially those experts were qualified and allowed to speak before the jury. Uh, and the jury accepted that defense. Uh, if, if, if I recall right, uh, Attorney Brown may be able to correct me on that. Yeah, no, I, I, but I think there was a lot of ho homophobia behind that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, matter of fact, a wonderful movie won the Academy Award. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but uh, the shooter was was uh, homophobic, to say the least. He, he was also crazy. I don't think Twinkies made him crazy. I mm -hmm. think he was just crazy. Um, but I think that... So did he serve time? He... Uh, a brief amount of time because there were two shootings. There was Harvey Milk and then there was the mayor. Uh, and so he served some time for one of them, but I don't remember what. Um, but it was outrageous. I mean, it's one of the reasons why the public has problems with mental health defense because they, they keep talking about that case, this, the, the Twinkie defense, which is absurd. Um, and it's, it's sad. Right. I want well, Attorney Mary to continue your point on that. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's first. It's all, always going to be difficult culturally to try to gloss over the uh, the mental health impact on these incidents. Even if we take it out of the exact trial uh, framework and just think about it from a societal preventative measure, we need to take mental health seriously and pay attention to why in the United States, unlike any other industrialized nation, and even other nations like Venezuela or Mexico or Colombia, who has comparable access to weapons, we still stand out as number one for mass shootings. And, and part of that is actually very much a cultural mental health um, um, problem that we're dealing with that's unique to the United States. No, it shouldn't hold up as a defense in court, but certainly in the culture, we need to address it and begin to deal with better access to mental health resources, early diagnosis, and obviously restriction of gun access uh, to people with predictable um, uh, uh, degenerative diseases or mental health diseases. Yeah. Uh, the thing I wanted to point out real quick is that Black people oftentimes don't get the benefit of mental health in mass shootings because a lot of the mass shootings that are committed by Black people are within the gang violence realm. And gang violence shootings, you might shoot three, four people, they're still not typically not counted in the mass shootings. So that number you quoted for 2021, Tammy, I'm not sure that that quotes all the times more than three or four people got shot in a single shooting because they typically do not count uh, gang violence as mass shootings in that number. Wow, that is an interesting point there. So you're saying if a gang member shoots 10 members of another gang, that is not a mass shooting. It's no, it's not. It has to be like something that's not criminally involved. They may have included it recently to up the number, but when you think of Sandy Hook, Columbine, and those whole string of shootings, Buffalo, South Carolina, the when you know there's a shooting in South Central Los Angeles where four or five people get hit, that's not going to be. It's not going to make that list typically. It's actually more more apparent even in Chicago. I, where I, I lived and went to graduate school there for a while. But there are, I think every week in Chicago, there's uh, shootings that involve more than four or five deaths. Let's and, hold that thought and we'll be right back on Business of Being Black. Sherry, I see you. We're coming straight to you after the break <laughs> on Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack on Fox Soul. 
Welcome back to The Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I'm Tammy Mack. And today, The Business of Being Black is should mass shooters be privy to the mental illness defense? Please welcome civil rights attorney Lee Merritt, racial justice and labor rights advocate Sherry Bell, attorney Jaye Person Lynn, and criminal defense attorney John Henry Brown. Sherry, I know you wanted to get in on uh, our last conversation, so let me get you in on your thoughts. Yeah, so now you get into the money the money question, the money problem, right? When you look thinking about gang shootings, you look at the socioeconomic conditions that these gang members are living in. No economic opportunity, no access and retention to good jobs creates a whole plethora of problems. And when we talk about resourcing and funding mental illness measures at the federal, state, and local level is just not happening at the scale that it needs to happen at. And also also education and protocols to follow when we issue a spot problems, right? Like when you think about the shootings that occurred in Uvalde and also in Buffalo, these uh, terrorists actually planned and plotted their shootings online months in advance, right? So not only do we need investment in economic opportunity and to resource mental illness at every level, but we also need to um, just have education on how what to do when you see someone makes a threat, right? As a parent, as a mental health worker, um, and also even as the FCC, right? Paying more attention to these knowingly online racist platforms where people go and say all kind of crazy stuff, right? So, I, you know, to just look at the problem and, and, and just look at that's not enough. You have to look at the underlying conditions. And most of all, it, it more often than not, it's always related to money, um, um, upholding the current power structure that's in place. Um, and everything that happens around that is for those two things. So just, oh, I yeah. just yeah. I've, I've got a lot of thoughts in my head right now. One of them is, are we is there anyone is there anyone in America that's even qualified and capable of dealing uh, with mental illness? Uh, I mean, because look, we have been through quite uh, an ordeal in the last five to six years here in America. And needless to say, the last three have really haunted us. I'm not sure that there's anyone capable of of interceding before things begin to happen and get out of control mentally, because we're all on this mental roller coaster in this moment. But I do want to revert back to uh, the gang members, uh, attorney Merritt. When we talk about mental illness, why can't we say that gang members have a mental illness? I mean, usually you're a part of a gang because of your living conditions, your environment and how systemically um, that impacts black people and brown people specifically in the way that much like Sherry said, has to do with resources and finance. Well, that's so true. And this is John Henry Brown again. I was just briefly wanted to say something. I, I, I want to give, hold on, hold on, John Henry. I want to give uh, attorney Merritt a, a chance to answer that question real quick because he, 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 he weighed in on it. So the institutional racism uh, that we, we identify so often is built right there into the system. You have a, a population of uh, a highly vulnerable aspect of our population, Black men who are often born in war zone-like areas. We're talking about the largest prison population or largest prison industrial complex in human history that are directed towards inner city communities where people are often food deprived, resource deprived, uh, who... who when you think about the upbringing, you can 
uh, it's sometimes better to other it so we can look at it from another perspective. But we think about the child soldiers in different parts of West Africa uh, who are um, sort of recruited into this culture of violence and trauma from a very early age, and they're just raised into it. And, I, and I'm speaking specifically, my father is one of them, who is a, a member of a gang who has a bipolar diagnosis. Uh, but none of that has ever been allowed uh, to be brought into court as, as a mitigating factor for uh, any crime that he's been accused of. Well, Why do you think that is, Attorney Brown? Well, um, because uh, the system is racist. <laughs> That's why. Um, but the point is, is I, I do a lot of uh, work for free. Uh, and uh, uh, in the last four years, I represented four young black uh, men. Uh, I'm talking young. One was 14 years old. Uh, all, all of them charged with murders that were just silly, you know, shooting another person for marijuana, things like that. But um, what I said to the judge and ended up helping these guys, I did in, in a number of ways, is that a lot of young um, black and brown folks don't plan for their future. They plan for their funerals. They really don't think they're going to live beyond 20 or 21 or 22. And that there's really that attitude. Now, that, that, is that a mental illness? No. Is it a social issue that we need to deal with? Yes. Uh, taken hundreds of years to get here and we need to address it like now. There's a whole missing generation. All these young men had missing uh, male figures in their lives, literally, because of mass incarceration, because of drugs, because of all that stuff. Right. So they had, they had no model. And also the de-unionization de of quality jobs that these men that was the head of these households used to have depleted in the United States. So that's also a contributing factor to explain the that. Share. The explain family. that. Well, in the 1970s, um, you started to see the decline of good paying unionized jobs like in the defense industry and et cetera, especially I can speak for in California, like many of our families migrated from the South to Los Angeles, places like Los Angeles for those good quality jobs. And then when you start to see um, the 1980s, Reaganomics, you start to see those jobs taken away, outsourced. Then you start to see the decline of the, um, the Black family. I mean, you know, and we all know that, well, gangs actually started out of protection, right, to, for, for Black neighborhoods to be able to protect themselves for, from um, racial terror, right? So when you think about the problems that we're facing now, a lot of it is largely due in, um, to the foundation that this country was built on, which was racial exploitation um, of labor, um, of resources, of uh, the construct of race. Somebody has to lose in, in order for someone to have to win, right? But we are starting to see uh, accountability um, in this area that we're talking about now. Um, just with in California, Governor Newsom introduced legislation that now victims of gun violence can actually sue the gun manufacturer. And um, in the mass shooting that occurred in Michigan earlier, of that shooter actually got charged with manslaughter for two reasons. One, because they made their gun available and accessible to him in their home. And two, they ignored the signs that this man was under, this young man was under mental distress. So we are starting to see some changes, um, not because of, you know, magic, right? There was a lot of groundwork um, done on the ground by activists um, in this area. 
Well, so I still, want to ask you, a, attorney. It's still a federal law that protects gun manufacturers, despite what Governor Newsom has done, which is great. Yes. There's, still, there's still a federal law. Uh, it's the only, the only industry in the United States where there's a federal law that gives gun manufacturers immunity from prosecution. Why is that? Well, I think we, we also have to look at it is a federally constitutional right uh, to keep and bear arms. And I know it's been said that uh, an issue is a gun issue, but me personally, for me and my people, I want us to have guns. And when I look back in the black community, when all this violence and crime was not as rampant, there were guns in every house. And I think that deterred a lot of people from taking the reckless acts that they uh, take. But I think the fact that guns is a constitutional right, I think uh, is what led to that legislation. Let's talk more what about it when we come back. We're going to take a quick break on the business of being black with Tammy Mack on Fox Soul. Welcome back to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I'm Tammy Mack. And today, the business of being black is mental illness as a defense for mass shooters. Should it be allowed? We were talking about uh, immunity for the gun manufacturers. We talk a lot on this show about police immunity, too. It's interesting to me that uh, the things that harm us the most in the black community are immune. <laughs> But we black people seem to not be immune to the damage that that these things cause. Why is it? Why? Why is it, Attorney Brown, that uh, the gun manufacturers are uh, uh, receive immunity from people who are shot with guns? Well, I think the, the real answer is the power of the NRA, which is waning. Thank goodness. I think Governor Newsom's contempt is great. Um, is it waning? Is is the power waning? I, I think oh. it's waiting, yeah. The, the NRA has gotten into some trouble of their own. Um, but, you know, keep in mind, when you talk about the Second Amendment, which was mentioned earlier, that, you know, when the Constitution was written, the gun a person had was a muzzle loader, <laughs> which would take one ball and then it takes 20 minutes to load it again. The, uh, there was no AR-15. Um, so uh, I, I agree with what counsel said earlier that... Uh, Guns are important for self-defense, but um, I think there's no rational reason to have a military-grade weapon in the hands of somebody who's shooting deer. Um, but, you know, that, that it's powerful, but it's, it's, it's waning. Um, there are some cases pending right now uh, in Connecticut, I believe, and another against uh, gun manufacturers. So I think and there's a bill in Congress to undo that immunity. Um, you, you know, people who kill in car accidents do. The car manufacturers who, who manufacture faulty cars get immunity? No. Okay, good point. Uh, so, you know, there's something that needs to be addressed. But also someone that takes a car and rams it into a group of people uh, the car manufacturer would not be liable for that as well. And that's uh, what I believe is more likened in these, um, in these comparisons. Uh, whereas it's not the, the, the malfunction of the gun that's leading to these deaths. It's the fact that the, the gun worked properly, properly uh, that's leading to these deaths. And then quickly to the point, um, I agree with Mr. Brown um, but to a certain degree, but I also understand that these police agencies are civilian police agencies. 
And it's my belief that if law enforcement has that level of weaponry, then the citizenry should also be uh, able to have the same level of weaponry as law enforcement. Uh, there's a case out of Los Angeles County, uh, a young man, Ryan, Ryan Twyman, I believe his name is, he was killed by sheriffs. Uh, they shot at him as his car was backing out. And then one ran to the trunk, got the AR and shot the AR through the car several times. And so it just goes to show law enforcement has the ARs as well. So if law enforcement has it, and I'm a black person in America that's never been felt protected by law enforcement, I need to be able to have the weaponry to protect myself from the tyrannical government that the Second Amendment allows with the understanding that we are not real Americans, we're 14th Amendment Americans, meaning that when the Second Amendment was initially passed, we didn't have that right to protect ourselves anyway. Uh, so I have that understanding, but since the 14th Amendment said I have the rights of a citizen, I need to be able to protect myself against the criminal element uh, from the private citizenry and the criminal element and the terroristic element from the government that our people have faced since uh, we were brought to these shores. On May 14th of this year, a white 19-year-old male killed 10 Black people and injured three others at a Topps supermarket in a predominantly Black neighborhood in Buffalo, New York. The shooter had a manifesto in which he laid out specific plans to attack Black people. Can a mentally ill person commit specific premeditated acts of violence like that? Can I be mentally ill but still have the mental capacity to plan an entire, I mean, he had maps and uh, ways he was going to do this. Can I be mentally ill and still have the mental capacity to make these huge plans of killing people? Uh, let's go to you. With, go ahead, Attorney Mary. Theoretically, yes. Practically, absolutely not. Hmm. No jury would ever buy that for a minute. I mean, mental health defenses, even when they're well-founded, are very difficult for uh, to persuade a jury. But no. Uh, not some that level of planning because one of the things is we talk about is diminished capacity. Do you have the capacity to form criminal intent? And one of the things that the doctors and look look at and eventually a jury looks at is is there planning? Did you know? Did you write this out? Did you write? Which means that you have the capacity to be responsible for your own acts. Ah, uh, the attorney merit. It, it's important in that in that scenario as well. This young man was able to get the weapon with the with the so-called mental health condition, right? On uh, his 18th birthday. Yeah, and and so it's it's critically important. Again, as we start talking about solutions, as we, as we start talking about reducing the amount of these shootings, one of the solutions has to be uh, reducing the availability and access to these weapons by people in mental health crisis. Um, and, and when we start talking about the Second Amendment, going back to that conversation, you know, the Second Amendment, uh, as a uh, council uh, uh, person pointed out, uh, although initially it intended only for a certain segment of the society, because of the 14th Amendment, we all have access to it. But that 14th Amendment talks about in order uh, um, to maintain a well-ordered militia, uh, the right to bear arms shall not be it. A, a, a bridge. When, when we start as a, as African American community start talking about keeping our community safe uh, from act, random acts of violence that we've seen in, uh, increase in recent years or, or during times of racial turmoil, we certainly should be investing in the ideal of a well ordered militia 
of a, of a defense unit of, that we govern from our uh, homegrown defense unit. Uh, but I don't think that means every every person with a mental of a potential mental health disease or an individual individually a right to an AR-15. I think that's absurd. Sherry, I want to ask you, if you commit a crime like a mass shooting, should it matter if you are mentally ill? Should that even matter? Should you still face the same consequences? I mean, I, I have to say yes, because number one, you shouldn't be on the street. Premeditation is like a very well thought out thing where you're singling out a group of people who are more vulnerable than you are. Um, you know, mental illness is a real condition like depression or schizophrenia, but many of the times when you see mass shootings, right? Like you have, you, you have um, to choose, right? Like it doesn't have to be that way because you have a mental illness. You don't have to, to, to resort to this amount of, of violence perpetrated against others. Do you think mental illness is used more for white people than black? Of course, yes, because a lot of what we see in the uh, you know media and the narratives, like you see bias, right? And how people are viewed like um, sympathy, right? For certain individuals when they commit crimes as opposed to others. And, you know, when you look at like the um, narratives that are being spewed by, you know, to advance certain political agendas, you definitely see a dichotomy in how one race, like a black or even a brown person is, is um, talked about in the media. I want to hold that thought because I want to ask the attorneys when we come back, how many mental illness cases that they see when it comes to black people and white people. We'll be right back on Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack on Fox Soul. Welcome back to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I'm Tammy Mack and the Business of Being Black today is uh, the mental illness defense. Now, this is what I'd like to talk about. Uh, Attorney Brown, I'm going to you on this one. Why is there such a disparity or is there? I mean, you've done several cases. Is there a disparity between the mental illness defense when it comes to white people versus black people? And if so, why? Well, historically, there's been a huge difference. And it's mostly basically as everything boils down to money. Back when I was a public defender, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, we had no resources to hire the best doctors in the world. Uh, and um, white folks did. Um, now that's changing. I, I, don't, I think it's also changing in California, but I know in Washington state now, uh, public resources are being made available to indigent defendants and uh, with the amount of resources being high enough to hire the best experts. So are you simply saying it's about money? Perhaps black people don't have as much money as white people to do the mental illness defense? Yeah, I mean, there's there's psychiatric defense cases. The, the doctors have cost over $100,000 or more. There's one going on right now. Your viewers might want to watch the Parkland one that's being done right now, where there's yes. the sentencing phase. It's very interesting. I know one of the doctors involved in that case um, and I'm, he's an excellent doctor, probably one of the best in the whole United States. Um, but his fees are being paid by the state. So that's a change. Oh, that's a change. It. It's just, that's just happened in the last five to 10 years. I believe council in California would agree with that. I think. Uh, attorney per person, Lynn is mental illness an affluent defense defense for the affluent. It can be. There was a, a famous case out of Texas where the young man was given leniency. I believe he 
committed like a vehicular homicide, that he was given leniency by the judge as his attorney uh, brought in the experts to testify that he suffered from affluenza, which means he was too affluent to understand the consequences of his actions. And it's a term you can actually Google and look up and there's actual diagnosis that one can receive. Um, but obviously you have to be affluent to raise that defense. Um, and then to another point on the differences between black and white is are the, the mental health professionals. Most of them by far are not black. There's very few uh, black mental health professionals. And so if you don't understand the history of black people, you don't know the traumas that we've suffered, you will not put that into your analysis. And then you'll just say he's doing this out of uh, a criminal mind, not of any trauma that they won't recognize. And and one point, if I have a, a client that I'm claiming post-traumatic stress syndrome or post-traumatic stress disorder uh, led to his actions or her actions, if that person was a US military vet, the prosecutors and the courts are more willing to accept that. But if that person is just a South Central vet, although they may have seen as much death as the US military vet, as much trauma as the US military vet, it's not respected the same way, even though it's the same kind of violence and trauma that led to the PTSD in the first place. Wow, that's a, that, that's a great point. Uh, just wanna know, so did he get off on the affluent? Plea? He he got like probation, I believe, and then like went down to Mexico and did something else. And then I think he had to serve a little bit of time uh, for that. But yes, he was given uh, probation uh, with the affluenza defense. Attorney Merritt, uh, I mean, are, how are these cases, how do they, how do they compare white people playing mental, mentally ill versus black people playing mentally ill? The mental health defense or the, the mental insanity defense is already a very high threshold at law. Uh, and we find white defendants are more capable of availing themselves of, of this defense because of better access to resources. Uh, and so we see the, the, the defense benefiting disproportionately um, uh, white defendants, but we don't see this defense as, uh, as, as terribly uh, uh, strong uh, at law. I think it's important, though, that as we, again, as our society begins to deal with the reality of the impact of a historic pandemic, for example, on the mental health of our nation uh, and the, the reality of the lack of access to basic health care, let alone mental health care for marginalized communities, we need to begin to respond. I'll tell you this as a civil rights attorney, I'm getting more phone calls about law enforcement officers who are being called to respond to family members in mental health crisis, people in their homes, in their pajamas, not really a threat to the community being shot dead during the mental health crisis. We need to develop mental health resources in this nation. I, I think it's part of uh, Biden's Build Back Better program, but we need to specifically begin to develop mental health departments, begin to pour uh, serious intentional resources into addressing the mental health crisis in our country. As a civil rights uh, attorney and community organizer, tell us about that. Well, the, the first thing that I have to do when dealing with families, uh, before we can identify uh, the, the appropriate prosecutor or who to get the facts before in order to get to justice, I tell families it's critically important that you begin to insulate yourself from the ongoing trauma that you're experiencing. Oh, if, wow. When, That's when good. 
when dealing yeah. with families like the family of a Tatiana Jefferson who was playing video games in her home uh, with her seven-year-old nephew, when a police officer walked up to her bedroom window and shot her through her bedroom window, the, the ripple effects of that traumatic event on her family that eventually killed both her mom and her dad and has her sister in the hospital right now is, is, is honestly like a psychological explosion in the community. Not only do we all feel the threat. Yeah, I don't think people understand how that is traumatic to a whole community. Um, Sherry, tell us about the LA Black Worker Center. Well, the LA Black Worker Center is here to serve our community, to ensure that black workers have access and retention to quality jobs so our communities and our families can thrive. I'm currently on the board and a member of the Political Education Committee. We worked on several uh, you know, local legislation, uh, such as the uh, workforce, um, demonstration project with the city of LA to a pilot program to get black workers into city jobs because uh, we know that having an economic, uh, a strong economic base um, has a lot of positive. Um, well, um, thank you for doing that work. I certainly appreciate it. John, yeah. the devil's defender, attorney Brown, the devil's <laughs> defender. Talk about it. Uh, well, it's a book. Um, I wrote, uh, I never thought it would be a book. Um, started as a journal and then I met some people in your business um, back in New York and other places and in LA. And now they're trying to turn it into a miniseries, which is hilarious. Uh, it's a book I wrote about my career. It's interesting because really only about 40 or 50% about it is law because before law, I was in the music rock and roll business. And then before I went to law school, I was working in Washington DC in the media. So it's it's a it's a. So it it's sounds a, like it's going to be. It, it is an amazing book, uh, full of of adventure. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 gotten a lot more attention than I ever thought it would. I'm well, very honored. I'm very very. We're honored. happy about that, attorney. Attorney person Lynn, please tell us how we can follow your work. Definitely. Um, Instagram Lincoln Lawyer LA. Great show on Netflix as well. Uh, um and um. Just finding me here, I, I like to be out in the community. I do a lot, a lot of work with a hundred black men uh, in efforts to expose young men in particular to various professions and ways that they can earn a living. We love that organization, 100 Black Men. And Attorney Merritt, tell us how we can keep up with your work. You can follow me at Lee Merritt ESQ on most social media platforms or LeeMerrittESQ.com. Uh, next week, we begin the sentencing phase in the Ahmaud Arbery trial uh, for the three men at the federal level for the hate crime charges in the Ahmaud Arbery trial. So please tune in for that as well. We'll definitely be looking forward to that. Thank you so much, Attorney Merritt, Attorney Person Lynn, and Attorney Brown, and also Sherry. Thank you for being on the show today. That is the business of being Black with Tammy Mack. Until next time, everybody. Welcome to Quick Trip. How can I help you? Why don't you ask him? It's my turn to bring snacks for our class bake sale. And I just told Mama about it five minutes ago. No problem. We've got fresh donuts. Oh, thank you. Next thing he's going to tell me, it's our turn to bring the drinks to soccer practice. <laughs> Steven. It's our turn to bring drinks to soccer practice. We've got Gatorade, Powerade, water, you name it. Thank this nice gentleman for saving your life. Any reason's a good reason for Quick Trip. QT. More than a gas station. A dramatic pause says something without saying anything at all. Feet deserve a go-to like that. Like Hey Dude Shoes. Light, comfy, good to go to.